0: Okay, uh, last week we were in First Samuel chapter 19. We will not be in that chapter today, but we will be about that chapter today. Uh, to refresh your memory, Saul was in hot pursuit of Samuel: Saul, first and present king of Israel, David, the newly anointed king, and Saul's replacement. Saul had windows of logic. And reality, but mostly he was infected by mental instability and even demonization, as we read in the text. So most recently, in 1 Samuel 19, he threw a spear at David, even while David was playing a harp to soothe uh, Saul's uh, instability. Then David ended up running from Saul. He went home uh, where uh, David's wife, Michael, or Michal in Hebrew, Michal, who happened to be Saul's daughter, said, David, uh, you won't make it if you stick around here. And so she, you have to flee. And she came up with a plot. She took a household idol. Uh, we discussed why she even had it. And she made it look like David in place in his bed, put some things that looked like hair and all the rest. So when Saul's emissaries came looking to arrest uh, David, they found that David wasn't there. Well, Saul was, as you might imagine, incensed about all this, and it sent David on the run as a fugitive, though the newly anointed king, for I told you we I don't think we know for certain, but from about 10 to 20 years before he actually occupied the throne in Israel, he's living, though anointed as king, he's living as a fugitive in Israel. And I told you last week, David did something about all this. He ran to God and expressed himself lyrically, musically, in fact. He wrote a song. And I told you we have it in the Bible, and I asked you to give some thought as to what that psalm might be. And I got a few correct answers from folks. It happens to be Psalm 59. And I wanted for us to take a look at Psalm 59 today because it is written in light of the experiences of 1 Samuel 2. Uh, 19 which i just summarized for you and you'll get a chance to see what david thousands of years ago was dealing with and how he dealt with it so find your way to psalm 59 and once we get into it you'll see why we can directly and specifically associate this psalm with the circumstances of 1 samuel chapter 19 so here we go psalm 59 See how it begins, for the choir director? Do you have something like that in your Bible? Good, good, good. Then you should, you should keep that Bible. That's good. What I just read to you is not uh, an addition by your editors or Bible translators. That is actually part of the inspired text of Scripture. So whatever respect you give to the rest of Scripture must be given, even to these introductory words. They are in the original manuscript for the choir director. Now, what is that all about? Well, this is a song that David wrote. It wasn't a song meant for entertainment, as are, well, many today, even in church environments. It was meant as a vehicle by which he could communicate the business he transacted with God in prayer. And you'll see it in a second. But this is written for a choir so for the choir director, set to al tashchet. Do you have words like that, al, something like that in your Bible, anything like that? You should have something like that. Well, we don't know what that means exactly. We do know it's a musical notation. It probably is meant to help the choir members know the tune of this particular song. So it's a musical indicator. That's about all we know. Furthermore, it's called a miktam of David, a miktam. That phrase, too, linguists are wrestling with the meaning of it, but we don't know with certainty what it means. We know it occurs in six of the Psalms, this being one, and all of which are written by David. We think it also is a musical indicator, having to do maybe with crescendo or something like that. These are direct directives given by David under inspiration to the choir director because the intent of this that he wrote is that it would be publicized and communicated to people through song. Every once in a while, I, when I read a psalm like this, I think, oh, boy, I wish we had the tune down to this very day and could hear what it sounded like. Uh, maybe when we get to heaven, we'll get the tunes for all of the psalms. We don't know it now. Anyway, notice this now. When Saul sent men and they watched the house, that is to say David's house, in order to kill him. And that's how we know this psalm is directly connected to the events of 1 Samuel chapter 19. So think about it. You're young. You've been officially anointed as king of Israel. Samuel, the prophet of Israel, did it under divine direction. But you're on the run from from, uh, the present king, who not only dislikes you, he wants to have your life. So this is what's happening to uh, David. And in that context, this is what happens. Verse 1. Deliver me from my enemies. Now, uh, when I read the Lord's Prayer, actually, the Lord's Prayer in the Gospels is better termed the disciples' prayer. It's the Lord's pattern of prayer, which he gave to the disciples to teach them how to pray, was really for them. And the Lord's, uh, it's called Tefillat Hatalmadim. The prayer of the disciples. It's actually called the disciples' prayer. Anyway, it begins... How does it, how does it begin? Say it with me. Our Father, who art in heaven, hallowed be thy Now, let's stop right there. So, from it, we glean that the first aspect of our prayer, the way we should initially approach God in prayer, is through praise. That's what that is. We should... We should honor God. We should reflect on who he is. We should rehearse perhaps in our own mind his perfections, his attributes. Well, David doesn't do that. He just starts right out pouring out his heart. Deliver me, says he, from those who do iniquity. Deliver me from my enemies. Why? Folks, be careful lest you be bound by the pattern in the disciples' prayer. It doesn't mean the order in which you express yourself to God. It means all those elements should be included in the course of your conversation with God. Folks, there are times when you are hurting to such an extent you are not ready to muster praise for who God is. You're not ready to rehearse his attributes. You just, as a torrent of emotion, have to get out your feelings. For you, sometimes prayer is not a cognitive experience. It's an emotional experience. You are hurting. And in those times, you are permitted, it seems to me, just to start out with where you are. Soon you'll see David gets around to acknowledging who God is, but initially it's just a torrent of emotion. Think about it. You're young. You can't live home. Your wife had to come up with some ruse to save your life. You escaped through a window. You're on the run from your father-in-law. You're struggling with this discrepancy between experience and revelation. God revealed to you you'll be king, but in your experience, you're not having a very king-like experience. a lifestyle by any means. You can't reconcile the two. You don't know how this is going to be brought to an end. You're being ganged up on. You have no power to resist those who are your enemy. Folks, it's just a flood of emotion. So David begins, deliver me from my enemies. But then he remembers who he's speaking to. And in three words, he begins to change his direction. Oh my God. In so doing, he acknowledges two things. He's speaking to Almighty God, the one, the only. He knew there wasn't a multiplicity of gods. He was monotheistic. He's speaking to Almighty God wherever he was, on the run, under humble circumstances. He's not speaking to a counselor, a pastor, a teacher, his wife, a good friend. He's speaking to Almighty God who's present with him even when he's on the run. But then he recognized something else. This transcendent deity who is, is his God. Oh, my God. So that possessive pronoun, my, makes all the difference in the world. Every sane thinking person believes in the existence of God. In fact, the Bible says it's only the fool who has said in his heart, there is no God. But to know of the existence of deity and to know deity personally are two entirely different things. And David is reminding himself, I know not only the existence of the creator, the omnipotent one, the transcendent deity, I also know he's come near and established, enabled me to establish with him a personal relationship. So he is now realizing he's uttering his heartfelt prayer to his personal God. Oh, my God. And this is what he asked for set me securely on high, away from those who rise up against me. He's praying what we do. He wants a change of circumstance, he wants the externals to change. He wants to somehow be lifted above the throes and the harsh reality of his circumstance. He doesn't want to deal with these people anymore. Oh, God, zap me, boom me up. Oh, God. Elevate me from the harsh reality of this which confronts me. I just want out of it. By the way, he's praying just the way you and I. You and I pray at times like this. And he goes on again, he says, verse 2, deliver me. He repeats it twice. This is why I know it's the language of emotion. That's what we do. You know, when we're hurting, we, we, we say to God, why? Why? why we repeat it sometimes we say how long how long this is the language this is the language of emotion so again david says deliver me but now he says from those who do iniquity and when he says that i think he's reminding himself of something it is not just he who is being assailed by these evil doers by definition if they are attacking One of God's anointed ones, they are attacking God. They are characterized as those who do iniquity, meaning uh, they are not just David's adversaries. They're also the adversaries of almighty, sinless, and holy God. Those who do iniquity as a pattern have set themselves up as those who oppose God. And David is being helped here. Oh, God, I'm thinking they're opposing me alone. And the sense of this solitary trial is overwhelming to me, but it's not so solitary. Oh, God, they're your adversaries as well. And I think he's beginning to see I'm not in this alone. Deliver me from those who do iniquity and save me says he, for men of bloodshed. Verse three, for behold, they've set an ambush for my life, fierce men launch an attack against me, not for my transgression, nor for my sin, O Lord. So what if you your suffering is due to your sin? It can be at times. Many of us, if we're honest, have to say, I have brought bad things upon myself because I have done bad things. I have sinned against God. I haven't done things his way, and now I'm reaping the consequences thereof. Can you not talk to God in that case? I mean, David said, what's happening to me is not due to my particular sin. Uh, Therefore, in clear conscience, he could address his remarks to God. Could you? Someone who has sinned approach God? Well, the answer is yes. But for you and me when we sin, the first order of affairs ought to be repentance. Just to clear uh, the ground to make sure there's nothing between us and God. I can't rush into my petition and plea for help before I acknowledge my sin to God. So in those cases, one could say, oh, God, I have sinned against you. I can't blame it on anybody. I did it because I wanted to. In fact, my sin was not haphazard, wasn't the sin of negligence. It was the sin of rebelliousness. I chose this course of action because I wanted to. It gave me pleasure, made me feel good temporarily. I call it what it is, God, in your eyes, though everyone is supposedly doing it. I call it what it is. It is sin in your eyes. I confess it to you. Then you could say, if you want, if you're a Christian, you could say, please forgive my sin. But I don't pray that ever. Now, you can hate me if you want. Uh, I don't pray to God for forgiveness of sin. I thank him for it. Why should I ask the Father for something he's already obtained for me 2,000 years ago on the cross? Father, forgive them. They don't know what they're doing. When Jesus died 2,000 years ago, it was in advance of all of our, uh, from that event, future sins. So I don't plead with the Father to give me something he's already given me to me that shows respect, disrespect. So instead I say, God, I don't have the forgiveness. I don't have the experience of the forgiveness of your sin because uh, of my sin because I'm on the run from you. But now I confess it and I might say something like, oh, God, restore to me the joy of my salvation. I don't ask him to restore my salvation because I don't think I lost it. I think I lost the joy of it. I ask him for that. Sometimes I then say to him, oh, God, thank you for forgiving me. Then I say, would you strengthen me? Because I'm telling you I have a tendency to do it again. In fact, I may, the probability that I'll do it again may be even greater because I did it once and it gave me some temporary gratification. Therefore, I'm prone to do it again. Oh, God, would you please strengthen me? I'm not like you, but I wish to be. Anyway, I might have that conversation before I then do what now David is doing. But he didn't have to do that because his particular travail was not connected to his particular sin. He had a sin nature, for sure, but what was happening to him was not specifically connected to what specifically he did wrong. On Wednesday night, we spoke about that. You have to be careful. It's called the doctrine of divine retribution, meaning if you're not feeling good, it's because you're not doing good. (laughs) And God is simply giving you what you deserve. But that (laughs) is that is not always the case by no means. In this case, David didn't commit a particular sin, but is being particularly sinned against. And so he makes it clear, God, what's happening to me is not due to any transgression in me. It's due to their transgression. Now, folks, I recommend not sinning. Because then it's so easy to charge into the throne room and with confidence, figuratively speaking, look God in the eye and say, oh, God, out of the integrity of my heart, I petition you for help. You really can't say that if your heart has lacked integrity. That wasn't the case with David. In fact, he continues in verse 4, for no guilt of mine, they run and set themselves against me. Arouse yourself to help me and see. He's essentially saying, God, this is, this is your wake-up call. God, you're, you don't see. You're not aroused to help me. I want you to be aroused. So that's a little, you might say, disrespectful to God. But I notice that God is very benign and compassionate when we pray the language of emotion and thus pray amiss. It's not God who had to be aroused to notice David. David had to be aroused to remember God. I remember when our kids were young, one of them, and I don't remember which one because it could have been any of them, one said to my wife and I, I hate you like that. So I was tempted to say, you will not talk to us this way. Uh, We are giving you away. (laughs) Something logical like that but I didn't say that because I thought who would take him (laughs) so the reason we didn't overreact is because he was real young and something preceded all this that created an emotional state of affairs and he was speaking out the language of emotion it was harsh yeah it was disrespectful But people don't really mean the language of emotion. You have to be able to understand the language of, again, as with David, it's a torrent of hurt feelings, of fear, panic, something. It just comes out. You don't want to reason with someone when they're speaking the language of emotion. You want to listen to it so that they can get it out. And I notice that's what God does here. God does not say, David, don't speak. Speak to me that way. Uh, God gives no sermon, no lecture, no nothing. I think God is thrilled that David ran to him, albeit inappropriately. Still, David trusted God enough to know if he was going to be helped at all, it would be by God who was his only help. And so he pours out his heart and he's trying to get God to arouse himself so as to help him as if God took a vacation, that kind of thing. And then it goes on in verse 5, you, O Lord God of hosts. And here's what's happening. Folks, I hope you're seeing the, the emotional movement in the psalm. He starts off with a cry of help, no praise, protocol, nothing like that, even maybe some disrespectful words. But he's moving from the intensity of that emotion, and he's moving out, and he's remembering who he's speaking to the God who is there, the God who is my God, and now he remembers this God is the God of all hosts. The word means armies, angelic armies. It's a military term. And David is reminding himself, I'm overwhelmed by the strength of those who come against me, but I'm speaking to the one who is the commander-in-chief of all the armies in the heavenly places. And I think as David is reminding himself of theological truths, he's getting some emotional relief here. God of hosts and furthermore, the God of Israel. Now, now here, here, here goes Israel again. So I will make a few comments, but do not blame it on me. I did not write this. I just can't find a place almost anywhere in the Bible where something about Israel doesn't emerge. Maybe it's my Jewish eyes that are open to that. But why does he say here, Oh Lord God of hosts, God of Israel? Why didn't he say God of Cuba? You know, God of Texas? Why God of Israel? Does he favor Israel and the Jewish people above other people groups? Does he see more virtue? Amongst Jews than anybody else? How do you explain? Why, does he, why is he identified? I think unashamedly as the God of Israel. I'll tell you why. A good God simply chose a particular people group. Why? I don't know. We'll have to ask him. He surely didn't choose this particular people group because of any inherent worth or value fact the bible says they were weaker smaller all the rest if, of all people groups i mean why don't you choose like some scandinavians you know with like they're six feet tall blonde hair blue eyes you know what i mean why why not they look like tony banfield why don't you choose like a whole nation of people who look like lovely tony that why do you choose you know these little semitic people you know and uh, Some people say, well, they're smarter than all others. That's not true. They're stronger than all others. That's not true. They're better looking than all others. Well, that one. (laughs) God is saying, I have chosen an unlikely people group uh, through whom I choose to reveal to you who I am. That's the purpose for God's connection to Israel. It's to reveal divine nature And human nature. So God chose an undeserving people group, and he bestowed upon them astounding spiritual privilege, which my people have squandered, and that reveals human nature. Even under the best of circumstances, we sin. We see this with Israel. They were in the best of circumstances, yet they turned against their own Messiah down to this very day. So in God's relationship with Israel, we see human nature, but we see divine nature, too. We see that God has not forsaken Israel. Now, I know this is a bone of contention and disgust in the theological arena. Has God rejected Israel and all the rest? If God has rejected and replaced Israel, then we found out something about God, and it's this. At a certain point, the people he chose to bless will so sufficiently sin. In fact, their sin will surmount his grace that at a certain point he says, I've had enough with you, I'll start a new program with a new people group. So if God has rejected and replaced Israel, with all due respect, folks, you're next, because you're not so hot either. Study church history, blemished all the way through. So God, on the other hand, says... Israel's unfaithfulness cannot compromise my faithfulness. And that's the basis of the security we as Christians have. Though we be unfaithful, God remains faithful. How do we know this? Not just on the basis of that verse of Scripture, but on the basis of an observation of how God has responded to wayward Israel. He's not forsaken Israel, folks. I'll just give you one date, May 14, 1948. Please explain to me how a people group out of its land for in excess of 2,500 years somehow is reassembled, and they speak the same language they spoke in David's time? How do they get reconstituted? How does a people group who suffered the loss of 6 million under the hands of Nazi Germany survive with 6 million? It's a tragedy, inexplicable horror that 6 million perished in gas chambers, but I think it's an even greater uh, mystery that 6 million survived so that in the world today there are approximately 14 million Jews. How? Tell me. Tell me how. Well, you can say they have great uh, airplanes or whatever you want. You can go through all that. That... That's not not true. The, The truth to derive is God affixed his name on this people group. And in so doing, we can see he'll never forsake them nor replace them, nor will he you who belong to almighty God under the new covenant. So David is remembering, oh, God, I'm part of Israel. You're the God of Israel. And then he goes on to say, awake and punish the nations. Now, this is very interesting. He starts out with a petition for personal deliverance. All he can think of is himself. This is understandable because he hurts. He's in the confines of his hurting personhood. He hurts. His thinking hurts, his heart hurts, his body hurts, he's on the run. Everything hurts, he can't get outside of himself until he starts praying, and then the intensity of his emotion subsides to such levels that he can broaden the direction of his prayers, and now it goes beyond personal salvation, and now he re- envisions God on an international scale, and now he's praying, oh God, these evildoers are just out to get me, but there's evil on a national, on an international scale, and oh God, I'm praying that you deal not only with these individuals who individually want to take my life, but I pray you would deal with evildoers on a national level. This verse is so very, very helpful to those of us who are acquainted with the news. Ah, to remember that that God is in control of all the nations you know I think of the rather unusual leader of North Korea It can kind of disturb you but then you remember oh God you're in control of all the nations I think about the rather unusual leadership in Iran I'm using the word unusual in place of what I'm really thinking. (laughs) I think of the unusual leadership in Venezuela. I think of the fact that uh, Mr. Putin, once head of the KGB, is now looked upon by some as a docile lamb. Are you out of your mind? You don't go from being the head of the KGB to being someone you can really turn your back on. I think about the leadership in China and about their intentions. Uh, I mean, you put your your finger on any point on the map and you say, "What?" You you can get you can become overwhelmed. I think of I think of Saudi Arabia, uh, one of our allies, close ally, one might say. They just came out with this new uh, decision the government did that for the first time ever, women, this is a good thing for you ladies, if you want to visit Saudi Arabia, women now are going to be able to attend athletic events with men, yeah, making progress, 2018. Oh, it gets better. Women in Saudi Arabia can now apply for a driver's license. Do you know 2018? Women in Saudi Arabia are not permitted to drive. Now, even though the government is now changing the laws, that doesn't mean the husbands of these women have caught up with that learning curve just yet. My, my point is, I think, God, there are nutso people running this place. But then I read this. <laughs> but God, God, God has sovereignty over all the nations. He's in control David was reminding himself, you're not only the God of Israel, <laughs> you can extend yourself uh, so far as to deal with all the nations of the world. Can you see what's happening to David? We're getting lifted up a little bit from the potential weightiness of uh, the oppressive world situation until we remember, "Remember, no, God, you are in control. Now David goes on, they return at evening the evildoers who wanted to kill David. You know, that's when people do their stuff at, in the darkness. They return at evening. They howl like a dog and go around the city. So that first bothers me because I, I'm like, I'm a dog person. And in fact, I think dogs are the, well, they're my favorite people. Dogs are. I said goodbye to my little cute Millie today to come here, to be here in church. I'm glad to come to church. But she looked at me with those brown eyes. I would never leave you. (laughs) Mm -hmm. And then when I I, I'll go home later. And here's what Millie's gonna do. Millie's gonna I'll I'll demonstrate. Millie's gonna she's gonna run to a little box we have, and she has these little stuffed animals. She gets it. She's gonna bring it to me as if to say a small token of appreciation (laughs) to you whom I love without condition. And then she's gonna say all that by doing this. She, everything is going to shake it's just <laughs> unbelievable she's just so then when i read this they howl like a dog why do you have to use that animal here I don't, I, i'm i'm sad to say this is another thing about my people uh, ancient people i'm not so thrilled about they didn't really have domesticated dogs as pets they thought they were unclean when they referred to people as dogs, they meant it as an insult. Just to show you how far astray my people have gone. Anyway, they should say they howl like a pig, not a dog. But anyway, that's, that's, David is likening these pursuers to a dog. Verse 7, it's very graphic here. Behold, they belch forth with their mouth. Look at here. When you're praying to God, don't worry about choosing your words that carefully. Pour out your heart. God understands oftentimes it's the language of emotion. Don't worry about making it a sacred, otherworldly prayer. Use the language that you normally use in conversation. Your Abba Father is near. He understands, and it'll help you to get things out. So David is quite expressive. They belch forth with their mouth. Swords are in their lips. You know the expression, sticks and stones will break my bones, but... Uh, words can never hurt me. That is not true. Words can hurt a person for the duration of their life. There are some here who are affected by words maybe you've heard from parents. You know, a dad says to you, you will never amount to anything. Folks, you're not getting over that right away. That sticks with you even into adulthood. So David is likening their words as if they're swords. A sword cuts and penetrates and and jabs and David says, and they do it as if to say, Who hears? In other words, I'll say what I want to, I'll think what I want to, to whom am I accountable. No restraint, not acknowledging the presence of God whatsoever. In verse eight, but you, O Lord, laugh at them, you scoff at all the nations. And that helps me again to remember above all worldly authorities is the one seated on the throne, highest authority. He's righteous. He's holy. He has, has a redemptive plan. He uh, allows human government, but ultimately he governs and we have to make recourse to him and not become unduly cynical, fall into existential despair and We have to know our Father sits in the heavenly. He scoffs at all the nations. He laughs at them. See how verse 8 begins, but you. I don't know if you have that in your translation. You should have something like that. David is talking about all that's going wrong, and then in the course of praying, uh, he comes up with these glorious two words, but you. In contrast to that reality is the ultimate reality it's the but you-ness of God. The world's going crazy. There are these evildoers. Nations are in disarray and run by crazy people. All But you. And David says, you laugh at them. You scoff at the nation. Can you see again the forward movement in the course of his prayer? We happen to know historically his external circumstances did not change. Saul remains a hot pursuer of fugitive David for probably decades. But what changed, if not the external environment, was David's internal environment, and it changed in the course of him pouring his heart out before Almighty God. Now his attention is directed not from the evildoers so much, not from himself so much, as to Almighty God who is sovereign. So he says in verse 9, Because of his strength I will watch for you, for God is my stronghold. His strength... Some take it to mean God's strength. I don't think so. It doesn't fit. Because of the strength of his enemies, because of the strength of David's pursuers, because their strength overwhelmed David's, because of that, he says, I'll watch, I'll look to you. Why? For God is my stronghold. They are really strong, but you are my stronghold. And he's coming to this conclusion, you see, in the course of prayer. And verse 10, my God in his loving kindness will meet me. God will let me look triumphantly upon my foes. And I find this to be amazing. He starts in despair, the language of emotion, an outpouring of understandable pain. Look, folks, he can't reconcile... Revelation and experience. Again, God revealed him to be king, but his experience doesn't look very king-like. This is a perennial problem we Christians have. We know God has promised us things. I'll never leave you or forsake you, for instance, things like that. And yet we get ourselves in life situations which seem to be contrary to promises like that. So we, too, deal with the discrepancy between revelation, that is to say God's promises... And our life experience. How do we put it together? David is struggling there. And so he goes to the right source. He goes to almighty God. Starts pouring out his heart. And he's making progress. And now he's remembering what God is like. My God... In his loving kindness will meet me. God will let me look triumphantly. David is now able to anticipate a future and a hope. Beyond the confines of his overwhelming present experience, he's able to know that God will triumphantly uh, deal with him and deal with his foes. And he refers to God's loving kindness. Do you have a word like that in, in verse 10? Anyone have a different word? Mercy, that's a good one. Listen, it's the Hebrew word chesed. It's a real important word, chesed, C-H-E-S-E-D, chesed. I repeat that because it helps me to clear my throat. I got a little stuff. Chesed. It can be translated loyal love. It's not erotic love. It's not human love. It's not the love that comes from a lover because of the loveliness of the object of his love, this is a purely in spite of love. This is a love that remains loyally in effect, even if the object of the love is disloyal. Chesed love. This is God's unique love for his covenant people. David is remembering, I cannot make sense of my present reality. I cannot bridge the gap, resolve the discrepancy between revelation and experience. But I do know two things about God. In the prior verse, he's strong. God is my stronghold. In this verse, God loves me. Folks, those are two huge questions you must ask and hopefully answer correctly when you are in the throes of great pain. You have to ask this question first, but is God strong? I hope you're able to answer in the affirmative. You see, if your answer is no, he's not, that means God is not helping you because he's limited and unable to. That would be no comfort to you. So in answer to the question, is God strong? I hope you can say yes. Now the second question you must ask, and I hope answer rightly, is this, but is God strong? loving. If you answer no, that too would be of no comfort to you. God may be strong, but he doesn't care. If you said yes to his strength, but no to his love, he's just an iron fist. He's omnipotent, but has no heart for you. That's not good. If you answered no, he's not strong, but yes, he's loving. You're saying God wishes to help me, but is unable to help me. Those are the two fundamental questions the sufferer must ask and answer correctly. And David seems to have done both. In the prior verse, he's reminding himself, I know there's all those who possess resources and strength far beyond mine. I can't go up to them. It's a whole group of people. It's a king who wants to kill me. How How could I resist them? But is not God strong on my behalf? The answer is yes, you're my stronghold. That's what David said. And then the second question, okay, God, you're seated in the heavenlies, you're sovereign, you scoff when people rebel against you, you're unlimited in your strength, you're the omnipotent one, but do you have a heart for me? And he answers the question in the affirmative, making reference to God's chesed, loyal, loving kindness. Folks, uh, those two questions and the right answer can get you and I through the most painful and overwhelming of circumstances. We can't explain the circumstance. I didn't say that. But we can focus on what we know to be true of God. Is he strong and is he loving? We don't comprehend all of his ways. I'm sure David didn't at, on this occasion. God could have told him, David, I'm allowing all this because I'm preparing you to be king. I have to tell you something. The explanation wouldn't resolve the pain. He's still being pursued by evildoers. We think an explanation will make life better. It's not true. We need a fresh look at God when we hurt. David is getting it here. And it's all in the course of prayer. He's not attending Bible study. No one's preaching to him or anything like that. He was in a covenant relationship with God just like you. He's taking advantage of it. He's pouring his heart out before God, and in the course of doing that, he's preaching to himself. He's reminding himself who God is here. And so he says, in light of all that he's remembered about God, he says something in verse 11 that I think is unusual. He says to God, do not slay them. Are you kidding me? It should say, human nature being what it is, wipe them out. Cut off their heads. Stick it on a pole have no mercy. We can understand that, but David doesn't pray that. Do not slay them. Why? Ah, Or my people, my people, David's people, fellow Israelites, will forget. So instead, he says, scatter them, these evildoers, scatter them by your power and bring them down, O Lord, our shield. Why does he pray that? He wants their, the living presence of these who have not only assaulted him but more importantly rebelled against God he wants their living presence as they're scattered about to be a living symbol of this don't mess with God that's one two God will prove himself faithful to his people don't mess with his people it's very similar to the Cain and Abel incident remember that Cain killed his brother Abel. What's the penalty for that? Homicide. Should be death. Nope. God sends him out and about as a wanderer. So people will say, why are you wandering? He too will be a living symbol of the consequences of sin and resisting a holy God. So this is what David prays uh, on this. Don't slay them suddenly. Do so gradually, essentially is what he's asking. Let them be a, a, a teaching vehicle to my people for a while. Now, verse 12, on account of the sin of their mouth and the words of their lips, let them even be caught in their pride and on account of curses and lies which they utter. Destroy them in wrath. Destroy destroy them that they may be no more, that men may know that God rules in Jacob to the ends of the earth. And then he says, Selah. Do you have Selah? That's the second one. Selah is, again, another musical term. It means take a breath it would be a choir, and this uh, who gets a chance, it's a dramatic pause. (laughs) That's what a Selah is. So David here, after pouring out all this, is essentially saying, I need a break. Selah means he's taking a deep breath. After he says what he does in verse 13, now he's calling for their destruction, destroy them. Destroy them that they may be no more. Their utter destruction, that men may know God rules in Jacob and to the ends of the earth. Is he praying out of uh, desire for personal vengeance no we are not permitted that did you know we're not permitted the luxury of hate we love to hate because when some injustice has been foisted upon us when we've been robbed of something maybe pride maybe reputation the only thing we have left is anger and hate it gives us a position of strength as christians we're not permitted the luxury of hate The Bible says, never take your own revenge, beloved, but leave room for the wrath of God. It's a choice. You either try to exact justice yourself or you let God be the justice maker. That's the way it is. So David is not praying for personal vengeance here. He's praying something very powerful. He's praying for the downfall of certain people, but in light of God's reputation, not his own well-being. Do this, O God, it says in verse 13, that men may know God rules in Jacob. Folks, I'll tell you the reason why Israel exists today. It's this very reason, that people may know God rules in Jacob. There's no explanation for the existence of the Jewish state. None whatsoever then I, from a logical point of view, I don't see how Israel's going to make it. you got Hezbollah. Iran supported Hezbollah on its northern border. you got Hamas on the west. By the way, the proposal of the two-state solution, <laughs> what would be the two states? Well, you say Israel and the Palestinians. What Palestinians? They don't get along you mean the Fatah Palestinians in Ramallah? Or do you mean the Hamas Palestinians in Gaza? Not only do they not get along, they hate each other. So you're talking at best of a three-state solution, which is no solution. It's sheer and utter nonsense. In fact, I think God is so displeased with a two-state solution, he's not allowing the Palestinians to even get it together themselves. So you got Hamas over there. Um, you, <laughs> you, you have, this is unbelievable. You have Iran and Russia setting up permanent military uh, presence in Syria. Israel's Golan Heights border. I don't see how they're going to make it. I mean, the population of Israel is approaching 9 million, let's say. Two and a half million are Arab citizens of Israel. That's not a whole lot of Jews when you think about it. It's a dinky little country in terms of real estate. You know, I tell people, we go on tour of Israel, we will see all the key biblical sites from north to south. They say, well, that's salesmanship. How can you do it? It's a whole country. It's a whole country the size of New Jersey. (laughs) There's nothing to it. How has Israel been sustained? How will it? Um that men may know that God rules in Jacob. That means Israel. So David is taking confidence here in God's sovereignty. Verse 14, they return at evening, bad guys. They howl like a dog. He's using the dog metaphor again. They go around the city. They wander about for food and growl if they're not satisfied. But as for me, I'll sing. He starts out with a cry. He ends with a sing, with a sing, with a song. <laughs> he starts out with the language of unbridled emotion, and now he's he's willing to sing of God's strength. What happened? He ran to God. He poured out his heart. Some say, "Why should I pray if God is omniscient? He knows all things." It's not to inform God; it's to transform the one who prays. David is transformed. Now he's going to sing. What is it about singing? Listen, if you can sing through your tears, you are really worshiping God and smacking Satan in the face. I mean, if you stop singing when you're hurt, Satan wins. Because he says to God, look at that person, that kid of yours is only singing when things go good. That person only sings when you bless that person. But that person is very silent when, when you don't deliver the goods. So when you sing, even though you're hurt and... And are in pain and all the rest. When you sing, you honor God and you you punch Satan right in the face. So David says, I'll sing of your strength. I'll sing joyfully of your loving kindness in the morning. The evildoers are doing their thing in the evening. David says, yeah, but I'll praise in the morning. For you've been my stronghold and a refuge in the day of my distress. And now the prayer consumed by emotion is able to track his history with God. And he finds out, wait a second, God has been my stronghold and refuge. As he was, he will be. And again, David calls upon these two key attributes of God, his strength, stronghold, and loving kindness. Same word, chesed word, once again. And he repeats in verse 17, Oh, my strength, I will sing praises to you, for God is my stronghold, the God who shows me chesed, the God who shows me loving kindness. Folks, the guy who opened in verse 1 seems to be entirely different than the guy who closes in verse 17. What was the intervening event? Was it Valium? Was it Counselor? Was it Pastor's Good Sermon? Was it Pot? By the way, just go to California. It's there. I mean, what is it? What can account for this? He poured out his heart to Almighty God. Folks, I hope you and I learn from this because as God was with David, so he is with you and I. That's the point of this being recorded down to this very day. God has not changed. And though David's specific challenges are different than ours, they can still overwhelm us like they did David, and we are to run to it. It's not just praying before we eat. God, thank you for the food. That's good. (laughs) This is privately, authentically, sincerely, clumsily, pouring your heart out before God. Staying with it, and finding that you get transformed too. Do you think that David was done with all this at the end of Psalm 59? We have lots of psalms similar to this, but I think David just figured out not how to change circumstances, but how to how to how to be sustained through them. He kept running back to God, and hence we have dozens of psalms written by David. I hope you and I learn from David, do the same. Oh God. As David found you to be a very present help in time of need, so too may we. This we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. God bless you, folks. Thanks for coming. If you like this young lady's resume, I'll give it to you.